glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stay with me if you would, please. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. <clears throat> and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say... And unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thank you. You may be seated. As we said, this is our fourth. Let me just say once again, uh, many uh, see each of these churches as representative of an age of time during what we would call the church age or the age of grace. And I'll just say this. You're not hearing me emphasize that for this reason. I'm not saying it's not so, but the Bible does not articulate that. The Bible doesn't spell that out. I can see if you study history, you can see why people think and why it makes sense to categorize uh, periods of time as the, uh, the Laodicean, for instance, church age. But there are some problems with that if we examine And that is, first and foremost, these are seven literal churches. So I understand that that is is commonplace and that is typically what is emphasized here. But sometimes in emphasizing this as a church age, we hamstring a church into thinking, we're in the Laodicean church age, so we can't be a Philadelphian church. And I don't believe that. I believe that, that the sufficiency of Christ is not limited by an age of time. And I don't think the men who preach that and, and press that do either. But the point would be, I'm not, I'm not making that kind of emphasis as maybe some would be used to hearing because I'm not comfortable with, with authoritatively saying these are absolutely church ages. The reason I'm not is that's not what the Bible states. You have to look at history and compare it to Scripture. And so there's a strong, there's a strong, there's a strong sense that that would be what they would represent, even as we compare it with the rest of Revelation. But what we do know with certainty is these were seven literal churches in existence at the same time. And whether they represent a church age or not, what we can do is learn from them. The Bible says with each one of them, uh, he that hath ears to hear, hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, the message to all the churches is a message to each one of us and to this church in particular, uh, to us as a church. And so we want to take away what we can. I have to be honest. There are portions of what is said here. I cannot give you a full explanation. This is exactly what he means when he says, I'll give you the morning star. I know who the morning star is. Amen. I know who the bright morning star is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how he is relating to that and giving this to this church will say some things about that. Uh, that I think are relevant and as we compare Scripture with Scripture. But there's enough here to understand that it is applicable to us that we want to do that tonight. So we're following with each of these churches the same basic outline. I keep reminding us of this, but I'll say it again. We're looking at the four basic points in each one of these churches, and that is the characterization of Christ. He represents himself to them and explains and describes himself to them first. 
than the comprehension of Christ. He'll say what he knows about the churches or the church. Then he'll begin to give them counsel and instruction. And then finally, consolation by a promise of, of a reward for those who are faithful and overcome. And so we'll break this text down the same way. There's more stated here tonight. This is 12 verses. Uh, not so much time is given to uh, the other churches as of yet. But the church in Thyatira gets, uh, uh, there's, there's quite a few verses dedicated to this church. And so we start in verse 18 with the characterization of Christ. I'll give you three different aspects of his characterization. He begins with characterizing himself in his person, who he is. He says, verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God. He's reminding them that he is the Son of God. That is how John described him in the Gospel of John. That was John's emphasis of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. As we've said recently, I believe in Sunday school lesson, Matthew emphasized the Lord Jesus as king and his kingdom. Mark emphasizes the Lord as a servant. Mark's Gospel emphasizes the fact that Jesus came as a servant. Uh, Luke emphasizes his humanity or his manhood. He's the son of man uh, in Luke. And not that he's not referenced as the other things in the other books, but that's the emphasis. And then John emphasized the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel as the son of God. So as John pins this down, this is a very familiar title for the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's how he introduces himself to the church at Thyatira. These things saith the son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, uh, and his feet are like fine brass. That's exactly how he was described in Revelation chapter 1. When John saw the vision of him, he sees a vision of him as having eyes as a flame of fire and his feet as brass. This is the same way that the Lord Jesus is described prophetically in the book of Daniel chapter 10 verse 6. I'm just going to read that to you. If you want to turn there, you can, but I've got it here and I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. Daniel writes in Daniel 10 6, his body was like the barrel and his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. What a powerful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that in detail in chapter 1. And so here we see the Lord again describing what John had already seen in the vision. He uses a different aspect of that description with each different church here He's reminding this church at Thyatira, I have eyes like a flame of fire. How many have ever dealt with someone? I was relating to someone this week, had a lot of conversation with this individual this week, and we were talking about our upbringing a little bit, and I was talking about my dad, and I said, um, sometimes I've been asked, so were you, were you military? In fact, I was, I was asked that today on the phone. Were you military? No, I wasn't military. Sometimes people ask it because the way of training and so forth, they say, no, but my father raised me that way to some degree, meaning he held you accountable. There were certain things that were going to be done, and I wouldn't say it was rigorous like uh, you know, a drill sergeant per se, but the one thing that I would say that characterized my upbringing is that would make me think of someone in the military. If you tried to wiggle out of responsibility, you could not get by with being deceitful or cutting corners without being held accountable for that. Uh, it's almost like he read your mind before you ever even spoke. He would look at your countenance. And sometimes I'd feel like, my dad has eyes like flames of fire. He looks right through me. I can't get by with anything. Uh, because any level of deceit, he immediately, it's like he had a deceit monitor. And if there was a, any level of it, it was like a Geiger counter went off. Now that's a human being. And I watched my dad, very discerning of people and and people interacting and so forth and discerning of people's spirit and that kind of thing, I think, is a spiritual gift there. But you take that and go further, and how many times are we able to succeed at deceiving another human being about who we are and what we are? We're able, for instance, they say something we don't like, and we're able to cover our irritation with them with a grin. And we fool them. They think, oh, they're not upset with me. They smiled. Not the Lord Jesus Christ. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Meaning, the Lord Jesus does not judge according to the appearance. His eyes are a flame of fire. They, his eyes burn through many times the guises we put up. We, we put up a facade and his eyes burn right through that. He's not going to be fooled by a facade. It does us all well to remember this tonight. That the Lord does not merely look at our methods. He sees our motives. His eyes are as a flame of fire. That's what that's dealing with. Just like fire would burn through the sun, the hot sun can burn. It will ultimately burn off the fog. 
and it burns through that. And so uh, something we must get hold of, 21st century American Christianity, because and especially a church like this, that many of us are multi-generational Christians, and we, we could tell you what Christianity looks like so that you're able to put it on as it, like you'd put on a mask that may fool men. We may know what phrases to say and how to nod our head and when to express agreement and convince somebody else we are sincere Christians, sincere followers of the Lord, but the Lord's going to see through that. And there were some things inside the church at Thyatira that they were just allowing to be there, just like the previous church, Pergamos, that the Lord's going to say, I see what's there. He's going to expose some things in that church that weren't pretty because his eyes were as a flame of fire. What he could see with his eyes, he was going to deal with with his feet. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, an emphasis is put on the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the heel of the seed of the woman will bruise the head uh, of the serpent. It will bruise his heel, but he shall he's going to crush the head. Genesis 3.15. We'll not turn there for time's sake, but it's the first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know it would, the, the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would kill, put a, a crushing blow on the head of that serpent because he has feet of brass. He, the brass speaks of judgment. Let me give you some verses that are relevant, uh, that, are, that relate to this, okay? So first thing he does, he characterizes his person. He's the son of God. His perception, he has eyes like unto a flame of fire. Uh, by the way, just for reference sake, let's go to Luke chapter 5. I've written this down. I want to turn there and read this. One of many accounts when Jesus does something like this in his earthly ministry. This gives us an idea of what it's talking about. It says he has eyes as a flame of fire. Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 21. Let me just, let me just say this. I'll, I'll try to give some context to the message. I'm at a point in a season in my personal life and especially in my ministry where I can look back and, and, and you start evaluating and when you, many times when we're, when we're younger and I'm not old, but when we're really young in the Lord or in the ministry, it, when you do something right and your conscience resonates that it is, if you're not careful, you, you really can get, I know this is a shock, you can, pride can creep in. You think, I'm doing a really good job. And then there comes a season where reality sets in. And you go, well, I did right there because that's what God's Word says, but ah, I'm disappointed with that as a parent. I'm disappointed with that. I didn't do that right. And I didn't do that right. If you're not careful, disappointment can turn to discouragement. That's not the will of God, but it would have us turn into a real honest assessment. One of the things I look back on my ministry, I'm being transparent with you tonight, is there are times that folks have come around and I think, how did I not see through the facade of insincerity? Because later things didn't turn out as they appeared to be. And you look and realize how lacking at the moment you feel like you're so discerning and you look back and think, I was really lacking in discernment. And I think I could have helped people more if I had had more discernment in that area. You say, why do you say that? Because that never happens to the Lord Jesus Christ. He never looks back and failed to see us as we are. His eyes is a flame of fire. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. Now, where does reasoning take place? in the mind and in the heart. So begin to reason, uh, the Bible says, saying, so it's just internally. They're not saying outwardly, as far as we can tell, but they begin to reason. If they are, they're just speaking to each other. They're not speaking to the crowd. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now look what the Bible says, verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say rise up and walk. How spooky would it be if somebody answered your thoughts? There are certain thoughts, I praise God that's all they were. I was able to identify those and God said that's bad and cast that down. But I'm glad you can't read my thoughts. I'm just being honest with you and I'm glad I can't read your thoughts. Because you have the ability to take thoughts and cast them down. Can you imagine if I were to read everything that went through your brain? Yikes! How many of you have been reasoning and all of a sudden the Lord speaks to you and says, why are you thinking that? Praise God for it. But the fact of the matter is, you and I, there's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. They're in my heart, my mind. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And so that's why he can say to a church, I know thy, and go right on down the line, 
because his eyes is a flame of fire. Then he speaks of his power. I begin to say we'll read some verses on that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. Speaking of the resurrection and of the, uh, the resurrection of Christ and then how that relates to the resurrection that is to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The feet of brass speak of his judgment. The fact that there is nothing going to be above him. He will reign until he put all enemies, including the enemy of death, under his feet. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 8. Another reference to this. And there's more. These are just the ones I've written down uh, for, for our reference tonight. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. That's t- talking about how when Jesus took on humanity. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And so talking about putting all things under his feet, that's what we're dealing with when it references his feet are his feet of brass. It's speaking of his authority and his rule over all things and the fact that he will execute judgment. And so again, it's very interesting how the Lord presents himself to his churches. I'm the son of God. Any true church should know that and believe that. It does. Amen? They said, I have eyes as a flame of fire and I have feet as brass. Is that really how you want to introduce yourself to one to your bride? Yes, absolutely. And that tells us the need of a church. Why do you think the Lord has to speak to his churches this way? With each one, thus far, minus Smyrna, he's had a word of rebuke. Why is it important for him to speak in this manner to his churches? And the reason is, I think, quite simple. It's what he prayed in John 17, 17. Prior to that, he prayed, Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. Meaning the Lord left his churches in the midst of a corrupting influence. And the only thing that keeps the corruption of the world from taking over his churches is his word. It's his eyes that are as a flame of fire. The world, listen, this world we're living in is is nothing but a facade. Everything that's out there, how many of you uh, realize that the world puts on like there is the potential of utopia in this life? That is facade. There's not utopia until you get to glory. Until then, we have sin, and we have evil, and we have disease, and we have all the things that come with it, and the only thing that's going to keep you from that corrupting and destroying your life is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's it. God did not decide to make the world a perfect place after Christ's resurrection. He decided to plant His churches not in a perfect world, and He didn't decide to make that world perfect around them. He knew the corruption that the world would seek to bring in among us and his word is intended to keep us pure and clean until he comes. That's the goal. And that's why he's speaking to them, reminding them, I'm the judge. My eyes are as a flame of fire. My feet are as brass. That that ought to prepare them for... He's got some things to say to us, right? And so, uh, again, I think this text, this is... These are the last recorded words in our Bible from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in heaven, but here he is speaking down to his churches on earth. And this, this, listen, this is the time frame we live in. This is how Christ is still communicating. And there's something evil in the spirit that we have permeating so many of our churches, especially in this country today. It's a spirit of compromise. It is the spirit of Antichrist. I'm convinced of it. That if you stand for any kind of truth, if your tone is nothing, anything less than conciliatory towards sin, then somehow you're not of God. Friend, that's a different God. As I read the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus did not modify his character to the age. He stayed the same. And he had, I'm going to tell you something. In our world, the Christ of the Bible is harsh. And he wasn't harsh. And he isn't harsh. And we shouldn't be harsh. Don't misunderstand me. But to a world that loves its sin and once condoned in its sin, he is harsh. How many ever heard somebody say, boy, those parents are strict? Like, boy, what do they do, lock their kids in the room? No, they don't let them play video games. 
<laughs> that's not strict. That's just common sense. Uh, boy, those parents are strict. What do you mean? They don't let their kids stay out until midnight on Friday night with all their friends. That's not strict. That's common sense. Do you know what I'm saying? That parent to a world that's lost their mind is harsh. A savior that would say, I want to remind you, my eyes are as a flame of fire, my feet is brass. Man, was he trying to terrify everybody? Oh, that he could. <laughs> Might help us out a little bit. But anyway, the point is, we made this point last week. This Christ in our book, in our Bible, the book of Revelation, is a foreign Christ to many sitting in pews in churches in America today. They know nothing of a Christ who is has eyes as flame of fire and feet as brass, but we need to be knowledgeable that's who he is. He is the judge, amen? And so then, his characterization, that's in verse 18. Verse 19, the comprehension of Christ, what he knows about the church, he says, I know thy works. This is the, the, the most common introductory statement. I know, I know thy works. And again, we're reminded, you'll never labor for the Lord and it not catch his attention. He knows our works. Listen, we may work for the Lord and no one else may know them, but the Lord does. So he, know, he says, I know thy works. This speaks of their productivity. Remember, we are saved unto good works. So they were producing what they were saved to do. I know thy works. He doesn't delineate what those are, but he knew them. Then he says, and charity. This is the first time he says this. Not only did this church have works, they were, they were doing something for the Lord. They were preaching his gospel, undoubtedly. They were serving one another, undoubtedly. They were most likely, I would assume, praying for one another. They were working for the Lord, but their works were coupled with the right motive. He said, I know thy works and charity. I would, I use the word here, profitability, meaning they were not just working for the Lord. They had a right heart toward people. They had charity. They, they had, it's what 1 Corinthians 13. Charity is the personification of Christ. This church shared uh, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he said, I know thy works and charity and service. I think that's very interesting. It's a church you'd want to be part of. They're busy working for the Lord. They have charity. They've got a heart of selflessness for others. And they are servants. Uh, this deals with the fact they were practical in applying their charity. They didn't, this is genuine charity. They are, they are servants to other services. The idea they were humble. This is a church that has humility. You don't have charity without humility. They were like the Lord in the fact that they were, they were giving of themselves for the benefit of another. So I know thy works, thy charity, thy service. That was their practical, service of humility and in practice. Their faith. This deals with their persuasion. He said, I know thy works, charity, service and faith and thy patience. They were cheerfully enduring the life of difficulty and the challenges that come with living in a sinful world. This is, this is quite a credit to this church. This is probably the most glowing statement yet made about church. The church at Ephesus had some wonderful things going on for, for her. But here's a church with good works and charity and service and faith and patience. Now, again, that word patience means to cheerfully endure not just endure but cheerfully endure and then he's going to say as though he didn't say it already and thy works well didn't he already say that i know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works but then he's going to he's going to explain and the last to be more than the first he knew he mentioned works twice he said i know your works and i know that you're still working and your works your last works are more than your first works that's wonderful Meaning they were increasing and growing in their labor for the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. He says, the last works I mentioned are greater than the first works I mentioned. And I know all this about you. I think it'd be wonderful for the Lord to say to us tonight, Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, I know thy works. And then in 10 years to say, and I know thy works. And your works now are more than they were 10 years ago. Wonderful. But you want, what would be the temptation? If you're, if you're sitting here and you've just heard the Lord say, I know your works, your charity, your service, your faith, your patience, and your works, and your last works to be more than your first works. If we know that about a church, by the way, a number of the things listed about this church are present in this church, and I'm grateful. But if we're not careful, we could say we're a great church because we have works and we have faith and charity and service and patience, and we know so because the Lord told us so. But the church also had a problem. <laughs> and we'll point this out again. It's one of the most valuable things the Lord has done for me personally through this text. 
I've told you this and shared this with you, but in my mind, and I would say you're because you're human, it may be the same for you. If I see somebody and they got some good things going, I think, well, everything's good about them. That's just wonderful. They're a wonderful person. And then you see something bad in them and it spoils. It's like, bah, forget all the good that I saw. No, no, no. No, we need to be just. If someone's doing right, it's right. And may I say, it would do well for Christians to look at a church. If the Lord would ever move you from here and you're going to consider where you would attach yourself as a church, how many people go into a church expecting perfection? If they don't find it, they just, I'm bored done. There were no perfect churches here. The Lord said, these are all the good things and these are the bad things. And they, he intended to correct it. And that's going to be true with any church, that there's going to be things that are right, there's going to be things that are good, there's going to be things that are not. Uh, now, if something doesn't meet the definition of a church from the Bible, stay away from it. But if it is, know this. There are going to be things you're going to see and say, oh, that's a wonderful church. Here's all the good things about that church. How many of you know this? We have a tendency, if we see the good things, we have a tendency to be blind to the wrong things. And then once you are settled, that's a bad thing. All of a sudden, then we blind ourselves to the good things. Just judgment sees both at the same time. You can have a child that is, is, is immediately obedient, has a good attitude, but slothful all at the same time. See, that's not possible. Well, it is possible. What we need to do is commend what is good and rebuke what is bad. This is commendable. You're doing this, you're faithfully you know, reading your Bible, spending time with the Lord in prayer, that's wonderful, that's good. Those are good qualities. Those do not negate the fact that I've had to tell you 13 times the last week to clean up your shoes or whatever. Right? Good is good, bad is bad. We're dealing with the people of God. You know what the Lord's doing? He's judging their works. He, they're getting a taste of the judgment seat. Where he's saying, this is good, this is bad. In your church, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And you say, why are we bringing this up again? Because as a church in existence, we need to ask the Lord, help us to see this. Help us to see what is it you're pleased with. What is it you would commend Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church for today? Uh, and, I, uh, and I tell you, there, there are things. I would say this. This church is a working church. We have an activity together. We're going to go out and we're going to hold a chili supper. We're going to go downtown and we're going to preach the gospel. Everybody throws in, does their part, does it with a whole heart. Working church. And that is commendable. We also need to ear, have our ear open, but what is not right about our church? What needs corrected? And he'll show us and he'll tell us, and he does. And so then, uh, his characterization of Christ, he's the son of God, eyes like unto a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, and then the comprehension of that church, their, he knew their works, their charity, their service, their faith, their patience, and their works, and their last works to be more than their first works. Verses 20 through 25, he begins to give them counsel. Now he's going to begin to say, Nevertheless, nevertheless, some here again would choose charge Christ. Well, he did never take the class on positivity. You know, you're supposed to only say positive things. Don't don't bring up the bad, right? Uh, but that's not that's not equity. And so he says this. Excuse me, verse twenty. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Now notice this: what he has to say, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophet to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. It's interesting to me, again, how the Lord Jesus is holding this church accountable. Is Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church accountable for what is taught in this church? The answer is yes. You know what? We saw that with the church of Pergamos. They had there in their church those that held the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and had the deeds of Nicolaitans. The Lord said, I hate the deeds and doctrine of Nicolaitans and you have there those that have the doctrine of Balaam. He gets more specific here. Whether the woman's name literally was Jezebel or if he's referring to the Old Testament Jezebel to help them understand the kind of woman they were dealing with or both. He calls her Jezebel, so that's who she was. <laughs> yeah, she's not the Jezebel from the Old Testament, but obviously she had the character like Jezebel. And the Lord says, you're suffering her. Now, we hear a lot in our world, in our culture, about tolerance. That's basically what the word suffer means here. It means uh, to let be. That is to permit or to leave alone. 
to commit or let alone to suffer, meaning you're allowing this. You're just leaving it be. So obviously, some woman was in the church that Jesus Christ refers to as Jezebel. She proclaimed herself a prophetess, and no one stopped her. No one said, no, you're not. You're a false teacher. No, you're not. What you're teaching is wicked. Your doctrine is resulting in people doing things that God said not to do. He said, how often is fornication supposed to be named among the people of a local church? Meaning, how often should it come out? You know what? You have people in that church that are verifiably living in fornication. According to Ephesians 5, how often is that to be in a church body? Let it not once be named among you. Today it has become commonplace for members of churches to be living in fornication and allowed to continue. God says what you allow, you're accountable for. Meaning, this is just, this is again, this is not a sin of commission, it was a sin of omission. I remember years ago, my grandpa, who got saved later in life, had some sons that weren't living right. He had a son that was living with a woman in sin. And they wanted to come visit Grandpa. The son did not claim to be saved. Grandpa's condition was, you may come, but you may not stay in my house. Because you're not going to bring your sin into my home. They were not saved, so it wasn't they couldn't have some level of communication with each other. Didn't claim to be. And I've known of others who said, well, we just want to be loving. We don't want to offend our children. What we allow, we're accountable for. Look at Romans chapter 14, if you would. Look at Romans chapter 14. You see, the Lord gave us power, gave us liberty when he saved us to do right. So what we allow, we are then abusing the law of liberty. We're using our liberty to allow sin when we don't have to. That's applicable in the individual, and it is applicable to a church. Uh, The Bible says... um, in verse 22 of Romans 14, and the context here is eating meat offered to idols. That's one of the things that was rebuked in the church at Pergamos, is eating, partaking uh, of that which you knew was connected with idolatry. And so then, verse 22, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. One of our major problems as Christians is permissiveness. And it starts in our personal lives. Lord Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Meaning, what we end up allowing things to uh, stay in a church because we allow certain things to stay in our lives. And so, I think this is a sobering text of Scripture. The Lord says, you have there in your church and you allow it. You allow Jezebel, that woman, to teach her, her false doctrine, she's a self-proclaimed prophetess, meaning she's not. She is. Did, did God allow women to prophesy in the New Testament? This is a Bible test. Actually, yes. Philip had four daughters and they prophesied. They were not allowed to preach in church to men. Don't misunderstand that. Some love that text. Philip's four daughters prophesied. That means they were pastoring men. No, it doesn't because the Bible says that that's not a role that women are to fulfill. Prophesied means they proclaim the word of God. God gave them a message. Whether it was right there in their home, how they went about that, just means God gave them the gift to proclaim his word, and they did. Not out of order of God's will and work in the church. They didn't usurp authority over men. But the point was, this woman was not one of those people. She was a self-proclaimed prophetess. Doing a little research tonight on Beth Moore. I mean, you're familiar with Beth Moore. That's a wicked woman. She's a wicked woman. Many admire her. They admire her works. She is a feminist. That feminism is not of God. Rocket science. That's a hard one to get, isn't it? It has ripped our nation apart. And you know what? There are, there are men all over this country who allow that woman to come preach in their pulpit. God's going to hold those churches accountable for that. She's a self-proclaimed false preacher because she's violating the word of God. And there's more like her. Uh, Joyce Meyer is out there, a, f- a false teacher as a woman. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. May I say this? People get mad. You name names like this. <gasps> hey, that's what we need to do. Those are, if it's a false prophet, we're going to name it. If it's a false prophetess, we're going to name her. And that's becoming common. Uh, 
You ought to read sometime a declaration made by the feminists back in the 1800s. It was written up in New York City. And they openly proclaimed, we'll not be satisfied until we're in the halls of Congress and we've taken over the pulpits of America. That was their declaration. And they're doing a good job. (laughs) You know whose fault that is? Let's not shake our finger at the feminists. It's the fault of churches that allow it. The Lord says, you're the one responsible. I'll deal with Jezebel, but I'm dealing with you for not dealing with her. See, their permissiveness, their tolerance of error was something the Lord said, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And so then, he, he begins with his word of reproof, verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach. Here's what they were allowing her to do. To teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 15, go there with me, uh, if you would, very quickly. Early on, there was a debate, as you well know, in the church. We've been dealing with this in the book of Galatians, over whether or not the Gentiles or anybody had to keep the law to be saved. It was determined, no, only through faith in Jesus Christ are you saved. But to those who were saved, the, the apostles laid down some basic things to give an understanding of how saved people ought to live. Meaning, God has transformed you. You've left your old life. So those of you who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, here's some things for you to stay away from. Okay, so there were those subverting teaching a works-based gospel. But the Bible says in, uh, in verse 22 of Acts 15, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas named Barsabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our own beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Meaning, you're believers in Christ, you'd have no need to go back and keep the law of Moses. That's not for you. But this is, that you abstain from meats offered to idols. Don't, if you know meat was offered to an idol, don't eat it. And Paul will explain that in great detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we're not going to lay down dietary laws of don't eat pork and don't eat that. No, that's not for you. That is complete in Christ. But as a believer, you are still not to be an idolater. So don't eat meat offered to idols uh, that you abstain from meat offered to idols and from blood. I'm still a firm believer. You're a Christian. Don't eat the blood of an animal. That is symbolic of idolatry and witchcraft. Why should we do anything that's associated with witchcraft? Amen. Uh, and so then they abstain from meat offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled, all these things relating to idolatry and from fornication. By the way, false religion and immorality are always together. One produces the other. He says, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Meaning this is not about your salvation, but you will do well if you abstain from these things. So you realize what Jezebel's doing? She is teaching the exact opposite of what the apostles taught. They taught as a Christian, you stay away from anything offered to an idol, don't eat it. If it was strangled with blood, meaning uh, it wasn't it wasn't bled out correctly, it was an idolatrous practice. And then they would drink the blood, and then they would get into immoral behavior at these idols of the temples. And what they're saying is stay away from it, stay away from the appearance of it, stay away from anything that would condone it or would indicate that you are still an I- worshiping a false god. We know that worshiping idols is sin, so they've been forbidden to do that. But here's Jezebel teaching the people in the churches to do exactly the opposite of what the apostles had commanded. May I say this? We have people today that are teaching you it's okay to do the opposite of the apostles' instructions for Christians. That's false teaching. So it has to do with salvation. That's not the point. How many of you believe a saved person is capable of committing fornication? Obviously so. But anyone that would give doctrine that opens the door to that is a false teacher. God says, that's done, that's past. Put off the old man, put on the new. Here's someone that was building a bridge back to the old life with false doctrine. 
May I say, I'll repeat it until I, I am accused of beating a dead horse. The, the new grace, so-called grace that's being taught, is building a bridge back to immoral living. It is teaching people to be permissive about things. Look, there are, there are reasons we stay away from certain things. There are certain activities and certain temptations that lead people into fornication. And in the name of liberty today, false liberty, people are giving a bridge back to an old lifestyle. Those folks are not to be tolerated. That kind of teaching that opens the mind to say, well, you know, God understands we are but dust. He understands the kind of people we are. He understands that a young person living in this culture can't help but mess up a time and again. I mean, it's just part of sowing your wild oats. No! That kind of teaching is false. God has liberated us from that to live a life of holiness and purity. And so when there is doctrine, there are people that are intentionally teaching things that is leading, that the teaching is leading people back to a life of fornication and immorality. I'll remind us, Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. I have watched in my lifetime a, a laxness sweep over even some of the best of people about immorality in the lives of professing Christians. That's problematic. It cannot be something that our minds are open to or okay with. God saved us from that kind of thing. The world is good at doing that. God's people ought to be holy and separate. And false doctrine is what leads to that. So guard, guard your heart. Uh, as a church, the day ever comes, and I'm not, you know, God knows the future. I have no plans of making any changes. But if the day ever came, and I'm not your pastor, it is your job to guard this church against the kind of teaching that opens us up to being okay with idolatry and immorality. Amen? And if that's where, look, ye shall know them by their fruits. There are certain ways of, uh, of thinking and doctrine that immediately, look it, there are certain churches and it can sound cold and unkind, but you can observe the doctrines that are in that church and say that church has to be filled with immorality. It has to be because of the propensity of human flesh. How many know what stands between you and immorality is a person called the Holy Spirit of God? And so if he is quenched and grieved and his word is replaced with false teaching, it's only a matter of time until we're immoral, any one of us. Because of the flesh. Flesh is rotten. How many of you have figured that out? Our flesh is rotten. Don't trust it. Don't, don't give in to it. Don't make provision for it. Why? Because it will take every opportunity. And so here's a woman that's not only present. This is not just a woman who herself is living this way. She is teaching people to live this way. Okay? And so the Lord Jesus is not happy about it. Do you gather that? You're suffering that woman Jezebel. To, may, I, may I say something? Can I, can, I, can I build a bridge here? People get all bent out of shape over music today. That if you say anything bad about CCM, you're a legalist. And I'm not kidding. I'm making it up. If you say contemporary Christian music is a bad thing, that's just not your genre. You're stuck in the past. You only want to live in old time tradition. Yada, 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 yada. I'll tell you what fleshly music does. It stirs fleshly passion. You cannot disconnect that kind of music with, from immorality. You cannot. And if you do, you've stuck your head down in the dirt and pretended something's not true that is. If you've ever been around a secular music concert, that's what it stirs, promotes, and enables. There's doctrine and there's, there, is, there is wickedness embedded in the very style. Rock and roll has wickedness embedded in the beat. And say, you are so stuck. Nah, you know why people shout that? Because they can't win the debate on substance. If you can't win a biblical argument on substance, all you can do is call people names, degrade, and dismiss. The truth of the matter is, you know why rock and roll was written the way it does? Because fornicators wrote it. And it came from fornicating hearts. You tell me that's not true of Elvis Presley and the Beatles and... And now we're using the kind of music those wicked men developed and putting the name of Jesus to it. There's nothing different than what's going on with Jezebel here. We're teaching people in the house of God through very subtle sometimes means to open up hearts and minds to immorality. I'm going to tell you something. We need to guard against that. The Lord's not, not, not pleased. 
when we're doing that kind of thing. So he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, verse 20, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce. That is subtle deception. Seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Our Lord is a perfect gentleman. How many of you would give a Jezebel space to repent? But he did. He said, she knows what she's doing, and I've given her time. I've given her space. Verse 21 is a sobering verse. How many know there is time between God when he initially speaks about something and then actually deals with it? Nebuchadnezzar was given space to repent of his pride. A solid 12, if I'm not mistaken, 14 months, but certainly a full year between when God used Daniel in Daniel chapter 4 to warn him, you're going to be, your vision means, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't repent of your pride. And Daniel was very, very ginger about how he warned Nebuchadnezzar. He was very gracious, very gentle would be the term. In warning him, God's going to cut you down like a stump and turn you out for seven years if you don't get right with him. And it was a full year later, Nebuchadnezzar, not even concerned about what his vision meant. It's interesting to me. Daniel 2, he gets a vision. You're, this, you're, you're the golden head on the image. And it's Daniel 3. He builds the image. Oh, he loved that dream. But in Daniel 4, you're the stump. And he paid no attention to it. He went out, looked on his king one day, look what I have done. And immediately, what God warned him about 12 months prior, boom! You think he even was thinking about that, that warning? You think sometimes there's a message preached and the Lord says, this is not right in your life. Now what are you going to do about it? Whew, I'm certainly not going to go and bow my knee. I'd be embarrassed. People might think of me. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And some time goes by and that's the last time you thought about it. And then either the chastisement, if you're a child of God, or the judgment, if you're not a child of God, falls. God says of Jezebel, he's going to say some strong things. He said, I gave her space to repent. I gave her space to realize you are wrong, you're teaching error. I've, she knows what she's doing, and I've given her space to repent, and she repented not. Meaning there comes a point when God says, okay, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to repent. Notice again, it's a sin of com- omission. She's already committing sin. He says, I want what you're doing to stop. I want you to know, acknowledge that what you're teaching is false, what you're doing is wrong. You agree with me that you're doing wrong, and she would not agree with me. So now I'm going to deal with her. Verse 22, he warns of retribution. So he's given a word of reproof, verses 20 and 21. Verse 22, he gives, he gives a warning of retribution when he says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed. It's obviously symbolic of the kind of woman she was and what she was committing in the church and her life, what she's leading others to do. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. It seems to me the bed he's referring to is it's going to be a deathbed. He's going to kill her. Uh, If you look at the context, he says, and those uh, that commit adultery with her, those that are joining her in her sin and immorality into great tribulation. What all that means, it seems to refer to the great tribulation, but that's not necessarily what's stated. Great tribulation is tremendous judgment. You read about what great tribulation looks like in the book of Revelation, you get a taste of what he's warning is going to come for those that join her. It seems to me that was present warning, but also prophetic warning. Those who get mixed up with the the great whore of Revelation 17, is it not the same ideology as this Jezebel? teaching people who name the name of God to live immoral and idolatrous lives. He said, I will cast her and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. You know, he's still giving them time. Not her, but those that are with her. He's still giving them time. Now, if they repent of their deeds, I'll not do that. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with death. You know what? This kind, this kind of teaching always has an offspring. We have a lot of apostasy in our nation today because of what is produced by this kind of false teaching. Know this, every doctrine, every doctrine is rooted in one of two things, belief or unbelief. It's either rooted in believing what God says or denying what God says. Don't you know everybody that teaches about God is teaching something related to what Scripture says? So they'll say something, well, I know the Bible says this, but... And then they begin to explain why what the Bible says is not true, that's rooted in unbelief. 
I know that, you know, so we see what the JWs did with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Their Bible says the Word was with God, the Word was a God. That's unbelief. <laughs> all right? And so, um, here's what happens. He says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches, when I deal with her, all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth what? The reins and hearts. Heart, of course, we understand. That's our core. That's, that's our innermost being. Reins are the thoughts that determine the direction of our life. Just like the reins on a horse. Go very quickly. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. We know verse 9, but we often we may not hear verse 10 as much as we hear verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17. We'll read verse 9 to give us the context of verse 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's a question. The answer is found in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I, by the way, by the way, verse 10, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yes? Who are we speaking of? Jehovah God. Okay? I, the Lord, try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 2 uh, verse 20, uh, verse 23 says, And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. Who's that? It's Jehovah God. But I thought that was Jesus. And the answer is, of course it is. All right, I search the reins and hearts. That's in fulfillment of that in John, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. And I will give every, unto everyone, and give every one of you, give unto every one of you according to your works. By the way, that's true of believer and unbeliever alike. The unbeliever is going to be tried or judged by his works. And he will be given according to his works, will he not? The lake of fire. The child of God will be given according to his works. He's not judged by his works, but his works are judged whether they're good or bad. And will be given rewards or loss according to our works. The Lord says, I know your works, I know their works, and I will render according to your works. The works that are produced out of faith in Christ, they'll be tested, good or bad. Loss or gain, and then he's over here, who never put their faith in Christ, they put their faith in their works, they'll be judged by their works. That's what we find in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. So, uh, and comparing that to 1 Corinthians 3. So, the counsel of Christ, he gives a word of reproof, he warns of retribution, and then he gives some wisdom for those that were remaining. He says in verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest, meaning inside that church, just like the church at Pergamos, there was an unbelieving element. There were tares among the wheat. There were bad fish mixed in with the good. Does that sound familiar? You know what? Is it possible for unbelievers to be inside of a church? Oh, yes. Who knows it? The Lord. Some of it won't come out until judgment day. There'll be people missing in heaven you thought were going to be there. That's a sad truth. All the way up to the night that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus, he is the only one that knew who that Jesus was talking to him. All the others said, is it I? Meaning they had more confidence in Judas's faith than they had in their own. Isn't that amazing? So, boy, we got to root all those people out. No, not until he says, that's here and you deal with this, right? But my point is, it's possible for the elements of the unbelieving to creep into the church. When we know it, we're responsible to deal with it. But the point is this. The Lord is aware of it and he said, I'm going to try the reins and hearts and I want all the churches. That does include Bonnetary Baptist Church, doesn't it? to know I'm the one that does it. I'm trying the hearts and the reins. He's looking at our inward man, not necessarily just our outward production. And so then verse 24, uh, But I say unto you, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, if you've not been seduced by her, and which have not known the depths of Satan, you've not fallen for this and gotten into the sin that she's led others into, as they speak, so the depths of Satan is revealed in what they say, I will not put upon you, I will put upon you none other burden. He said, if you're not there yet, all I'm saying is know what she is and know I'm going to judge her and know I'm going to deal with her and uh, I have against you the fact that she's present. That is, that is a, I, I am not, I'm against you for that. But I put upon you none other burden. That's it. This, this is the problem. Verse 25, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Meaning the good works and the charity and the patience, you hold on to that. Don't let go of the good because of the bad. How many, how many Christians are doing that today? Well, I was serving the Lord, and I was in church, and I was loving people, but that church had this false teacher in it, and now I'm not doing any of it. He said, no, hold fast the good. 
What you have already, hold fast, but stay away from her because I'm going to deal with her. And we would learn a wise lesson. Don't, don't throw away service to God because somebody else is a charlatan. Satan wins on both accounts. Does he not? He does. And so then he says, you hold fast what you have till I come. That tells us how long we're to be faithful, doesn't it? He says, verse 26, and he that overcometh, here we begin in, in getting into his consolation to the church, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, meaning you hold fast what you have till I come, to him will I give power over the nations. See, I'm going to give you authority. If you're faithful to me, I'm going to give you authority to rule with me. Verse 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. said, so you will share with me in executing judgment in my kingdom. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Then he gives, so that's, that's his promise, and then his proclamation. It's out of order on this one from the other ones. Not out of order, but a different order. The other ones he'll say, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This one he gives the promise, and then he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's consider a few verses as we close. His promise is to give them power to rule with him uh, with a rod of iron, to break to shivers uh, those that are being ruled as a, a potter, shall they be broken. And so even as Christ received of his Father to rule with the rod of iron, he said, I will give it to you. If you'll be faithful to me till I come and hold fast what you have, and stay away from that woman. You stay away from that false teaching. Meaning be faithful, separate from the evil and holding to the good. Then I'm going to reward you by giving you power to rule with me and give you the morning star. Look at this, Matthew 13, verse 43. I think it's interesting to see this verse in comparison to being given the morning star. Jesus is called in Revelation 22, verse 16, the bright and the morning star. By the way, some false translations refer to Satan as the morning star. Did you know that? number of the new translations refer to him, Lucifer, not as the son of the morning, whatever it's referred to, and I don't have it written down. But they call him the morning star, meaning they give the title of Jesus to Satan. Last time I checked, that's a problem. Um, I wouldn't use a translation that does that, amen? Matthew chapter 13, verse 43. Matthew 13, 43. The Bible says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. By the way, what is the morning star if you're talking in the physical world? It's the sun, right? God's people are going to shine forth as the sun. And I think there's a reference to this promise. I'm going to give you the morning star. Meaning, if you compare this to the power, meaning you are going to be brilliant. You're going to be, God's going to exalt you highly. If we'll humble ourselves before the Lord and be faithful in this time that he's given us to be faithful under persecution, under pressure, under the, 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 the corruption of the world, will hold fast to his works and be faithful. There is a reward for the faithful. This is one of those crowns, uh, if you would. It's, this is a reward for faithfulness. It's not salvation. It's you're going to rule with me and I'll give you the morning star. Uh, of course, he's, that's, that, is, that is shared authority. He will share his glory with us. How many of us know the last aspect of our salvation is glorification? All right, we have salvation. We have sanctification. And then one day we'll have glorification. We'll be in perfect bodies, no sin. And here this idea of being given the morning star has to do with our being glorified together with him, ruling and reigning with him. Even as he's been highly exalted, we'll be there with him ruling and reigning. And so what a promise. You know what? You know what keeps us faithful in this life? Looking forward to the promises in eternity. The Lord says, look, I'm not promising you an easy life. But if you'll be faithful till I come, I am promising you my glory to be shared with you. You can read in Romans chapter 8 that the glory that shall be revealed, that's going to be revealed, you can't even compare the sufferings in this life with the glory that's going to be revealed in that one. And so let's be loyal to the Lord. Amen. You know what, you know what it reminds me of? Any church. It, let me just say this. this. This comes from my pastors and church planting heart and mind. You can get it in your mind. I want, I want to be wise enough in the establishment and care and pastoring of the church, we don't have these kind of problems. <laughs> it's impossible. Every church is going to have to deal with false teachers. Every church is going to have to deal with Balaams that come in. What we don't want to do is not deal with it. Amen? What we don't want to do is say, we are more concerned with what people think of us and feeling comfortable than we are with what the Lord thinks of us. We want to be welcoming. We want to be kind but we never want to be a lukewarm hotbed for corruption, or wrong terminology, lukewarm bed of corruption. 
You know what grows in lukewarm atmosphere? Corruption. The Lord says, no, and we'll get to that in the, in the church of Laodiceans. I don't want you that way. So let's, let's hear what he says to the churches and apply it to ourselves. Mm-hmm.